So we return this morning to our study of the books of Kings. We are making our way through these two books, First and Second Kings. We are in Second Kings chapter 13 this morning. And I hope, in, just as a way of sort of getting into it this morning, I hope that you have found these to be tremendously eye-opening narratives as I have. Um, as I've marched through all of these different chapters, all of these different scenes and vignettes, we have been made to see uh, a lot of different things, sometimes pretty scary things. Sometimes pretty violent things. Sometimes things that would make our stomachs turn. But I think what is most fascinating to me is each narrative sort of invites us to come to grips with all of this darkness, depravity, uh, all of this horrible wickedness that we see in all of these different chapters. I think at the same time, the historian is inviting us to come to grips with who our God is as well. And I would think that that's... The historian, whoever he was that wrote these particular books, who, as he's carefully constructing these narratives, he's doing so in a way that he, as he's retracing this rise and this fall of God's great people, his chosen people of Israel, I think as he's doing that, he's also shining a beaming spotlight on just who God is. If you want to know who Yahweh is, If you want to know who this king of kings is, he is this king who, as we've seen, and as we're going to see even here this morning, never gives up on his people. I think that's a predominant theme throughout all of these narratives. There's, as I've said, there's been dry narratives, there's been boring narratives, there's been violent narratives, there's been miraculous narratives, but through it all there's a, there's a plodding and a persistence to the way in which God, God, yes, Yahweh, Jehovah God, the king, never relinquishes his grip on his people, even though they make decisions all the time to continually turn away from him. How does God treat his people with just this everlasting patience? If there's one thing that I know that I can work on in my spiritual disciplines, it's patience. (laughs) Perhaps you can say the same. And they always say, you know, don't pray for patience because God's going to give you a situation in which you are going to be very much wanting to be impatient in it. (laughs) Because he's Learning, He's teaching you through that situation. And yet I think if, you, if we take sort of a bird's eye view of kings, what we're seeing is how God is the perfect father who is unceasingly patient with his wayward children. Who keep going their own way. Who keep trying to make their own way in this life. Who keep running after false gods. Who keep running after depravity and iniquity and sin and strife and perversion. And yet over and over he delays judgment. He seeks them out. He sends them prophets. He sends them mercy. And I think that's because this is his heart. For his people. His heart is for them to turn to him. And to relish in him. And to never relinquish their grip of him. And he's going to stop at nothing. If he can get his people to see that. I've said before that. One of my favorite theological books. Is actually the children's Bible book. The Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I invite you to read it. It's pretty profound in a lot of places. But she says early on, and I thought that this little quote fit with the context of this morning's sermon. 
Especially in the light of this notion that God never relinquishes his grip on his people. She says early on in the book, quote, God would move heaven and earth to be near his children always. Whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And I think that is so amazingly true as we've seen already and as we're going to see this morning. That yes, sometimes that's what God has to do. He has to move heaven and earth to show his people just how close he is to them. Even though they've run away. Even though they've repeatedly hurled themselves after other gods. If you read the Old Testament, isn't it somewhat exhausting? I'm saying this humanly. To just read how often the people of God turn to him and then they turn away. And it's almost just tiresome to see how often account after account Yahweh works out his people's renewal, his people's restoration. And then they turn right around and squander whatever it is that God had given them in a blink of an eye. And I would say as a way of introduction this morning that I think... Not much has changed since those days. You know, as I've said before, we're so often given to thinking that these people are so foreign to us. They existed all those thousands of years ago and they had all these different societies and cultures and the ways of living. But if you boil it down to the human level, these humans are no different than you and I here today. In 2022, Central Pennsylvania, America, we're just as given to being unsteady and unstable Just as given to doubting and confusion and running towards other things that aren't God. We are so given towards that. Which is why I'm glad that in response. In response to his own people's sort of unsteadiness. What does God do? He shows himself steadfast. Infinitely steadfast. And such is what he does for us as well this morning. I want to show you this morning as we go through 1 Kings 13, or 2 Kings 13, excuse me, three quick lessons that show us this, we could say, infinite steadfastness of God our Father. First, I think, is just drawing sort of a contrast by showing you, number one, that man's faith is fickle. Man's faith is fickle. It doesn't last. It's sort of fleeting and it flies to the next thing that catches its attention. And the historian is quick to show us that as he situates us into this history. As you'll note from the beginning in verse 1, we had heard of that Jehu. He's the same Jehu from chapter 10 of 2 Kings who dealt all of that vicious and vile judgment on the house of Ahab. If you read that chapter, the body count is high for Jehu. He's a vicious man, but it's so fascinating at the end of that account, God gives Jehu the promise that because he has been faithful in dealing judgments on Ahab's house, he is going to provide Jehu with heirs to the fourth generation on the throne of Israel. So here at the very beginning of chapter 13, even though Jehu was a conflicted character who did some things well and did some other things not so well. Yes, even still God fulfills his words to him. How? His son is on the throne. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. 
he begins this, we can say, first fulfillment of the promise given to his dad. That even to the fourth generation, there will be one of Jehu's line on the throne. But rather than see God at work in just the way in which Jehu was brought to power, rather than see the way in which God was involved in all of that, what does Jehoahaz do? He turns from God. And it says, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which made Israel to sin. And he departed not therefrom. This, of course, as I've liked to say, this is, we could say, the plague of Israel. The sins of Jeroboam. It harkens all the way back, if you can reach all the way back there, back to 1 Kings chapter 12. Where Jeroboam, the new then king of Samaria, rose to power and immediately invited false gods and idolatry into the religion of God's people. And of course, all the way back then, we were informed that our historian gives us a hint at just how often this plague would be seen in God's people. And we're seeing it even here hundreds of years later, as yet still the people of God are plagued. They are their own undoing. They're seeking out falsehood. They're seeking out things that, were, that see God's word unheeded and disregarded. That's essentially what you have here with Jehoahaz. He comes to power and Yahweh's word is still left in the gutter. Even after the small little reform that we saw in chapter 12, it's not good enough. Israel clung to these phony gods from this phony religion, first started by Jeroboam and continued as it sunk deeper into the hearts of God's people. They were... God's people, we could say, were ensnared in this vice grip of idolatry and iniquity. And as we've seen and noticed already, this is not the first time. And yet here, it's almost as if we get a glimpse at God's patience sort of being put to the test. Sort of reaching the red line limit of it. Because it says in verse 3 that his anger was kindled against his people. And the anger of the Lord, it says... Was kindled against Israel. And he delivered them into the hand of Haziel. King of Syria. Into the hand of Ben-Hadad. The son of Haziel. All their days. God at least in this particular instance. Had had enough of Israel. And their, and their fickleness. And there are ways in which they appear righteous and pious. And they immediately fly off. And go to cling to other deities. And it says that thou, Yahweh, in this particular moment, has had enough. His anger is kindled. Literally, we can translate that word that Yahweh, his nostrils are flaring in frustration. That's how seething mad he is at his own people for how fickle, how flighty they are with their faith. And he sovereignly raises Hazel up. To cut down his own people. As we've seen before. That's what God can do. That's how powerful he is. No nation is outside of his authoritative reach. And he even uses nations that are on the outside. So to speak of the covenant. To cut down and to judge those who are part of it. So he uses Assyria. To cut down his people. As a moment of judgment upon them. Jehoahaz. Is aware of this predicament that he's put his people in. 
Assyrian army is squeezing them, reducing them to dust. Notice verse number 7. It's a continuation of verse 4 about how how Syria is oppressing God's people. And it says that neither did Hazia leave of the people of Jehoahaz, but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. And the king of Syria had destroyed, for the king of Syria had destroyed them. And it made them like the dust by the threshing. (laughs) He's reducing Israel's military might to nothing but dust. He's grinding them to powder. That's... The oppression and the squeeze that's happening on God's people. And what does Jehoahaz do? I think it's fascinating to me that as he is feeling this pressure, feeling this weight, yes, politically, yes, royally, yes, as the leader of God's people, he's feeling it socially and the world scene as Israel is being oppressed by Syria. What happens? It says Jehoahaz besought the Lord. He gets on his knees. He starts begging God to do something to save them. It says, for he saw, or it says, uh, beside the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. There's several fascinating little tidbits in this verse. The first thing that comes to mind is just how reminiscent this little verse is when you compare it to what happens in Exodus. I'm just going to go there. Keep your finger in first, 2 Kings 13, but listen to this verse in Exodus chapter 3. Because I think it's quite clear that the historian is wanting our minds, or at least the minds of those to whom he's addressing, to reach all the way back and remember this part of their own history. Exodus chapter 3 verse 9 says this, Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, unto Jehovah. And I also, oh, excuse me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Just as God saw the oppression of his people at the hands of the Egyptians, so too here does he see their oppression at the hands of Syria. And I think it's on purpose that the historian is connecting both of those two instances just to make it very clear, giving this humbling realization that God takes notice of the predicament and plight of his own people. Even when they themselves are the ones who have put them in that predicament. It's interesting. Yes, Israel was under slavery to the Egyptians all the way back in Exodus. Here, Israel is under oppression, we could say, of their own making. (laughs) Choosing other gods, choosing other people to serve and to cling to. And yet, what do we see? God noticing their condition and having concern for them. Because the thing more remarkable than anything else in this particular verse back in 2 Kings 13 and verse 4 is just the fact that God listens to Jehoahaz, as it says, and the Lord hearkened unto him. Jehoahaz hadn't, hadn't really concerned himself with Yahweh. He hadn't made God's word a part of his life. He hadn't resorted to that as the thing to which he clung to for guidance and wisdom and insight and sovereign will. No, he had made his own way. He had made his own will. And yet, God notices. God hears. God is attentive unto his cries. The Lord listens to him. 
I think it's incredible that the prayers of this wicked king were heard by God's ears. And they're not just heard, but he decides to take action. As it says in verse 5, And the Lord God gave Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. He acted. He raised up this deliverer to make a way for Israel to get out of this war, to get out of this conflict. As it says, Allowing them to return to their tents to have this time of peace and reprieve. Now many historians have decided to debate on who exactly the savior was. Was it such and such king or such and such monarch or ruler from wherever this... It doesn't really matter, I think. We can debate ourselves on who exactly to try and identify this historical figure. But I think that kind of misses the point. Because the point is not who the Savior was. But the point is, as the historian is making very clear, that Yahweh intervenes on behalf of his people to secure their salvation. He's raising up whoever the Savior was to deliver the, uh, the people of God out from under the hands of the Syrians. Yahweh is acting. He's the one saving. He's the one ensuring his people's safety and welfare and good. I think that's the point that the historian is trying to make. Yahweh is doing it on behalf of people who are fickle and frail in their trustworthiness of who God is. Yes, even still God acts on their behalf. And yet, what was the result? National revival? A mass renewal of interest in the words of Yahweh in the things of his word and his truth? No, not at all. Not any of that. Israel's delivered, and what happens? Verse 6, nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. How fickle are God's people Even after this amazing demonstration of patience, faithfulness by the hands of God, delivering his people out of bloodshed, out of conflict, out of further oppression, even that wasn't enough to stir them back to him. Instead, they're stubbornly clutching all of these counterfeit gods, these counterfeit gods of Jeroboam's religion and of the grove, that horrible religion of Asherah. They remained in their sin even after their God had demonstrated such faithful power on their behalf. And I step back and I think, how often is this me? How often is this us? We see what God does for us and yet our hearts are incredibly fickle. Changing allegiances perhaps more often than the weather forecast. You open it one day, and it's going to be one temperature. You open it the next day, it's going to be rain. You open it a couple hours, and now it's back to sunshine again. You can't really rely on it. It's not very trustworthy. And so, too, is our hearts. 
We find ourselves pulled by all of these different allegiances, these troubles that we see, these difficulties that we are made aware of. They, they lead our hearts to be pulled in all these different directions. And we make all kinds of promises and vows to God about how this difficulty is going to be the one that leads to change. I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to get rid of all those old habits and all that. And yet when all the heat of that pressure cools We revert back to the same old ways. We feel the heat of all of that moments. And then when it's gone, we revert back to doing the same old, same old. You don't have to raise your hands, but I can't be the only one who's experienced that. (laughs) I think that's the human experience in some ways. We are fickle. We are inconstant. And... Always seeking new things to fill us, new things to grab a hold of. And yet, even after we witness God's power, we run ahead and go ahead and lead on to clinging to something else, to someone else. Even after God has demonstrated such infinite faithfulness for us. Man's faith is fickle. Number two, by way of contrast, man's faith is feeble. Because I want to show you just how good God is. But I want us to see just how fickle and yes, how feeble we are as well in terms of our faith. Joahaz, he had a fickle faith. His son though, Jehoash, had what we could say is a feeble faith. And it's interesting to know what he does. The historian here, he summarizes Jehoahaz's reign in two verses, verses 8 and 9. And then he segues right into his successor, his son, Jehoash. It says, in the 30 and 7th month of the year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoahash, or excuse me, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel and Samaria and reign 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. But he walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash, same name, same guy, and all that he did in his might wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne, and Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. A couple of notes. Again, like as before, Jehoash and Jehoash are the same guy in this particular chapter. And the historian gets weird because he keeps switching the spellings of names, but it's the same guy. But also now, number two, we have a new Jeroboam. So they like to not be original with their names. But now here we have another Jeroboam sitting on the throne. But it's interesting what I see here is it's fascinating that in 16 years he summarizes it in four verses. That's all that his reign amounted to. It didn't accomplish much. Perhaps he was accomplishing much in the social sphere. But in terms of religion there wasn't much to say about him. A historian Leaves it up to that. And yet there is one story that he spends more than double the amount of time talking about. And it begins in verse 14. It is the moment of the prophet Elisha's death. It's the moment which I would say exposes Jehoash's feeble faith in who God was and is. The scene... Again, it doubles the amount of time that the historian has already spent on this particular king. And it comes right at verse 14 where it says that Elisha had fallen sick. 
of his sickness, whereof he died. He is on his deathbed. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Interesting moment as this king here comes and weeps over this dying prophet. And it's significant for a couple of reasons that we ought to take note of. Mostly because just like his father and his father before him, Jehoash, hasn't made God a part of his life. He's clung to the sins of Jeroboam, clung to that phony religion. And yet even here, he sees the passing of this prophet as a very momentous event. Such that he refers to Elisha with that same admirable title that was first given to Elijah back in chapter 2. If you remember, Elijah was calling the same thing, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. You see, this prophet's death was signaling the end of an era. The end of an age in which God was working mightily through a prophetic voice for God's people. And yes, as we've already seen from verse number 7, Israel is largely defenseless at this point. Syria has grounded their military might to nothing but the dust of threshing. And now the voice of Israel's God was frail. He was dying, breathing his last few breaths. You can imagine, perhaps, that even if this king wasn't fully trusting, wasn't fully uh, sort of aligned with who this prophet was representing, he recognized just how significant this moment was. And yet here Elisha puts the final moments of his life to good use. As he takes this king through, we could say, an acted oracle. or I like to say sort of a prophecy with object lessons. It's like, you know, when you come to Sunday school or come to Bible clubs and the teacher uses, you know, maybe a two by four and a gallon of milk or something. I don't know. And he tries to teach you something out of that. Here, Elisha is essentially going to do the same thing. It's a prophecy with object lessons. Notice what happens. Elisha is on his deathbed. And the king comes. And Elisha says unto him, verse 15, and said unto him, take a bow and arrows. And he took unto him a bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon the bow. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And the arrow of the Lord's deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek until thou have consumed them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. Now, at first glance, the story is a little strange, I admit. (laughs) This dying prophet is concerned with shooting arrows at a window and then shooting some more arrows at the ground. And what in the world does all this mean? (laughs) Especially when you read verse 19. So he, as we already looked at, the prophet tells the king to shoot some arrows at the ground. It says, and he, sh- he smote thrice and stayed. And then it says, and the man of God was wroth with him. 
And said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. Apparently, the king didn't get this part of the prophecy right. Instead of shooting the ground five or six times, he only shot it three times. Which makes Elisha very angry, very cross. (laughs) So much so, though, that he amends his prophecy. So rather than consuming his enemies, now they're just going to smite them. And I think, at first, we might be tempted to just skip over this because it's too confusing. Or we might be tempted to get hung up on all these little details that comprise it. Especially the number of times that the king shot the ground and all that sort of thing. As if there's some magical number, which I don't think that there was. But I think this vignette is trying to sort of display something rather simple for us. The arrows, of course, are symbols of God's triumph for his people. Quite clearly, as Elisha calls them, the arrows of deliverance. So as Jehoash pulls back the string and lets that arrow fly, and it flies out the window eastward... As it says, towards the way in which the people that he was fighting with were coming from, it obviously foretold Israel's victory. And so long as the king was trusting in that promise, Israel's enemies didn't stand a chance. They were going to be consumed, totally demolished, totally wiped out. As as has always been, God has promised victory, absolute victory for his people before they even lift a finger in battle. And here he does the same thing again. And yet when Joash is commanded to shoot the ground, he kind of does so unconvincingly. He wasn't really acting on the words of the promise. He was sort of just going through the motions. It's almost like he's shooting the ground according to the prophet's word. And eh, that's good enough. Three, three is probably good enough. I imagine Elisha sort of giving this king sort of a knowing but stern look. Because he hasn't really taken God at his word. Again, he's just kind of gone through the motions, just followed along, hoping to receive some better word from the prophet. He acts as if he's still doubtful. Doubtful uh, not only of this prophet, but whom this prophet represents. Again, very clearly, his faith is feeble and frail at best. He had a limited grasp of who Yahweh was and what his ability to deliver his people could be. So rather than consume his enemies, they only smite them. Look at verse 25. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities, which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father, by war. Three times did Jehoash beat him. And recovered the cities of Israel. Three arrows into the ground. Three victories in battle. Not really what God had originally planned or prophesied. This king's faith was feeble. And it led to feeble results. And I think sometimes that describes us too. 
Perhaps more than we would ever care to admit. You know what? I would think, I think that more often than not, more than anything else in our present life, what encumbers and hinders and hampers our faith is the limits that we ourselves impose upon it. We believe, but like this king, we often believe, but only feebly. Only in a very limited sense. We say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, but we often live as though that's not true. We live as if we have to sort of make up for it, that we have to earn it, that we have to win it. We say we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But we live as if he is not interested or involved in us at all. We say we believe that Jesus is the mighty king, the master of everything. But then we often live wringing our hands in fear over what the unknown has for us. Over what the future might hold for we who are his people. As I was reading this particular story, I had to stop and ask myself. And I'll, I'll ask you because I had asked myself. <laughs> What would happen if we wholeheartedly believed what we said we believe? What would happen? What would really happen if what we said we believed really took hold of our lives? And not just our lives, but the lives of those around us. Quite simply, we would not live in fear because we would know that we are forgiven. And that, yes, the God of the universe is with us and for us forever. We would have a faith that is firm and strong and solid. That does not give way at the slightest breeze of persecution or doubt or fear. We would live steadfastly against the rising tide of sin and hopelessness and despair. I pray wholeheartedly that we who believe and we say we believe, we would really believe and act upon that belief. Not just with words, not just with our vows, not just with our testimonies, but with our lives. Man's faith is fickle. Man's faith is feeble. But in contrast to all of that, God is faithful forever. God is faithful forever. That is sort of the bookend to this wonderful little chapter. That our God is a God of his word. He never goes back on his word. He always delivers on what he says he will do. As we have just pointed out, even to this doubting king, Jehoash, this one who was possessed by a feeble faith, even for that, he fulfills his word. He struck the ground three times. Three times he's victorious in battle. Despite his doubts, God delivered him. But here, in verse number 20, or verse number 22, excuse me, the historian zooms back out again. He zooms back out to the time of Jehoahaz, the the king that was in the beginning of the chapter, to sort of bring home this point of God's faithfulness. If you remember, as we said at the beginning, Syria was oppressing Israel, squeezing them, putting them under a vice, we could say. And of course, this was a part of God's judgment on his people. But God's people have once again turned their backs on God himself. So now they are feeling the judgment for that. And what does God do? 
Verse 22, but Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. And the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. Even as they, God's very people, the very ones he has chosen and brought out, delivered out of the the oppression of the Egyptians and led throughout all of those wilderness wanderings, all throughout those victories of Joshua, led them through the times of the judges, through the heights of David, and through the lowest of the lows of Ahab. God has turned towards his people, even as they've turned away from him. And even here, he's doing it yet again. Showing respect, as it says to them, turning towards them in compassion and grace and favor. Yes, even to these who were bringing this trouble and this conflict on themselves by turning away from God. He is faithful to their need. Yes, even to these who are fickle and feeble, he deals them with them with a grace that is constant. That goes out and reaches towards them. With a hand that is steady. Because he is a God who cannot lie. Did you know that? That Numbers chapter 23 tells us that. That ours is a God who cannot lie. What he says will occur, will occur. You can bank on it. You can count on it. And he shows us that in the most mysterious way. Jump back to verse number 20. Listen to these verses. And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at that coming of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down, he touched the bones of Elisha. He revived and stood up on his feet. Now, this is very curious. In the midst of all of these stories, very historical accounts of all these kings who are, yes, disbelieving. And the historian is bringing us through all of these details of war and how they failed God and all those sorts of things. We have this fascinating story about this nameless guy who wakes up after being dead because he touched the bones of Elisha. Weird story. Weird events. I often think, how long was he dead? Because we don't know how long he's dead. Was it four days like Lazarus? Or was it longer? And what did he do when he resurrected? And what did those who saw him die do when they saw him walking around again? Especially these guys who see this Moabite invasion force. And they're just like, we got to get rid of the body. And then they're fighting these guys. And then they turn around. And the guy that they had thrown into the grave is now walking around with them. Very strange sequence of events. And yes, they are quite odd, but I think they have a very powerful meaning for us. Especially, though, for these who were in this moment in a place of exile. You see, just as this man, notice that word? This man was cast. Where's that word? Oh, there, verse 21. And they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. 
And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood up on his feet. Verse 23, the Lord was gracious and had compassion on them and respect unto them because of his covenant and would not destroy them, neither cast he from them from his presence. You see, I think here the historian is giving us quite a glimpse at what is to come for God's people. We know, at the, this is spoiler alert, if you get to the end of 2 Kings, you'll know that God's people have been in exile. They've been, we could say, in their own sepulcher, their place of death. And yet, so too as this man was cast into the place of death and found that he was revived and restored to life, so too would God's people find that their place of death, their exile, was actually their place of being brought back to life. That's what would happen because that's what God was going to promise to do for them. That that exile was temporary. It wasn't forever. Imagine what these words sounded like to Israelites who were reading them, who were in exile themselves. They are feeling the effects of exile and banishment and death away from God's promise, away from God's place of promise. And here the historian is reminding them that they won't always be destroyed. They won't always be cast out. Why? Because God is faithful forever. Faithful enough and powerful enough, yes, even to take a nameless man and resurrect him alive, so too can he take a wandering people and restore them back to glory. This is God. The God that we have. The God of Israel too. He is faithful to his word forever. And not a single syllable of anything that he has ever promised has ever fallen to the ground or missed its target. It has always come through. Generations come, generations go. Generations find a resolve in the things of the Lord in his scriptures. And some generations fall away from God our Father. And yet, what is faithful throughout all of that is this God, Yahweh. He is faithful through every generation, through every season of doubt and distress and worry and fear. As we sung about, he is great in faithfulness. He abounds in that posture towards his people. Listen to this verse out of Deuteronomy. Listen to what it says about this God in the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. From the earliest days of God's people they had this truth. Know therefore that the Lord thy God. He is God. The faithful God. Which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him. And keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. (laughs) He is faithful forever. Faithful to yes even those who are fickle and feeble and faithless. What does he offer to those Who finds so much doubt, so much things to cling to other than him. He offers himself. You know that passing phrase in 2 Kings 13 and verse 5 where it says, And he gave Israel a savior. You know, that's what he's done for every feeble and fickle sinner that's ever existed. He gives them a savior. 
Even in their fickleness. Even in their feebleness. Even in their sin. Romans 5. Christ died. For those who were sinners. He gave himself for his enemies. He gave himself over to those who did not deserve his salvation. This faithful God has been faithful forever and faithful he will remain. He is a God of his word who gives himself for his people, for their good. Let us pray.